Here we go, the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. I'm Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover the Miami Marlins every single day in our own way. Recording this show, coming off a sweep, only the second time all year that the Marlins have swept a series against anybody. Um, And just like the previous one way back in early May against the Diamondbacks, this one happened at home. At Lone Depot Park, it puts the Marlins in sole possession of fourth place in the National League East, which they've not been since very early in the season, vaulting ahead of the free-falling Washington Nationals. We're going to get into this past weekend that put them in that position because it's a very rare stretch of high-quality, well, not quite, highly successful baseball for the Marlins. Not so sure about high-quality, as we'll get into. First, a reminder to rate and review this podcast on Apple if you haven't already. We are making a donation to the Players Alliance, creating more opportunities for the black community in the baseball community, and now through the end of the regular season, with every new rating and review that this podcast gets on Apple, we'll be chipping in an extra dollar towards that donation, so hoping to make a difference to them uh, in their effort to bridge that gap. You can find out more about their organization at theplayersalliance.com. At Lone Depot Park, uh, a lot of festivities going on. Puerto Rican Heritage Night, uh, Bark at the Park, where, where you bring your dog along. And uh, a pretty decent crowd for this series. Probably not what it would have been if the Cubs were still a relevant team, but that roster is unrecognizable from where it was when these teams pre- previously met early in the year in Wrigley. They made oh, that big, they kind of pulled off the Band-Aid on their old core and made those trades all at once in one flurry. And a lot of the players they've called up in their place, not exactly highly regarded top prospects. Frankly, a lot of members, especially of their pitching staff, that I had not heard of before. And I'm somebody that, you know, tries to keep my eye a little bit on what's going on with every team. And I had uh, really no insight into some of these players. And as it turns out, many of them did not really endear themselves much during this performance over these three games. We're going to go through them one by one. Because there are plenty of positives, but also, you know, some red flags, some disappointments along the way with this Marlins team. Um, We're at a point in the season where I want to celebrate the fact that they're on this winning streak, which matches their longest winning streak of the season. They have not won more than four in a row at any point, so they'll have a chance to do something unprecedented on Monday against the Braves. But uh, despite that, I mean, the main focus at this time of year is figuring out which of these players really matter to the future of the organization, particularly in 2022 and beyond. On Friday, the highest scoring game at Lone Depot Park all year, 14 to 10 over the Cubs. To me, honestly, I think the biggest story of this game, you might want to say, of course, was 11 runs scored in the second inning, which ties a franchise record for the biggest single inning rally in Marlins history. Uh, But the biggest takeaway to me when we're, again, really focusing on the individuals, is Jesus Lizardo struggling in what was, in my opinion, his worst outing as a Marlin. He's going backwards in terms of the quality of his performances. That first one uh, at the beginning of August was pretty solid. I mean, tons of swings and misses and limited the opponents only three runs. Then he went to Coors Field. 
that was that was ugly but you could tell the way that the altitude was affecting his pitches and some of the damage on his final line were inherited runners from the bullpen uh, so even though this line was a little bit more tolerable five innings pitch six hits five earned runs four walks six k's two home runs allowed uh, 106 pitches um it was it was not good it was really not good he again did not have command of his stuff and he really didn't have much control of it either a lot of fastballs just missing wildly out in a way to hitters where they were not tempting whatsoever to chase um you could pick out in every outing you pick out several really nasty breaking balls that he gets but there are some hitters that really pick that up well and do not chase it far out of the zone so when you're struggling to throw pitches in the zone and you're struggling to get chases out of the zone that's that goes to show that you've pretty deep issues going on right now. Uh, I agree with the decision to have him try to work it out in the major leagues. I don't think they need to do anything dramatic right now. At least one more start to see if he can at least, you know, stop this slide in terms of quality. Um, And his next matchup, as things are currently lined up, would be on Wednesday against the Braves. So that is a higher quality test for him than this Cubs team was. But when he was early on in this one, remember the Marlins fell behind four to one early on before going on that rally that kept them ahead for good. And that was because Lazardo just was not very effective right now. Through his first three starts, 11 total walks, and the only pitcher in baseball that has more walks in August than Luzardo is old friend Caleb Smith. There's nobody else in baseball out of hundreds of other pitchers that have pitched so far in August that are giving away these many free passes. I think there's at least one hit by pitch in there that this is should be a red flag at the very least that he definitely has some things to work on in terms of just repeating his delivery. Um, it's across the board, but just not throwing enough strikes in any of his counts. His velocity is still very good from the left-handed side and he's in good spirits post game when addressing the media. So hoping that things improve a little bit for him because they have some interesting rotation decisions to make in the near future. Uh, so also from this game, they had that big rally and Alex Jackson home run. 3-2 pitch. And Alex Jackson with a high fly ball. This one out toward left center field. This one's got a chance. This one is gone. Uh, Brian Dela Cruz, another big game. Uh, he had the grand slam in this game. 3-2. And this one is hit out to left field. This is the right side and the right shape. He comes back and it's a grand slam. He was somebody that right off the bat, very first game that he played after the trade, I liked what I saw with Dela Cruz. And he continues to be so consistent. I mentioned this on the Fish Stripes Twitter account that you can really only point to one other player during this entire rebuild who was a minor leaguer that broke through to the majors on the offensive side and immediately started hitting consistently, making that easy transition. And it's Harold Ramirez. That's the only other guy that has had this kind of seamless transition to performing against major league pitching. Well, we'll keep up. We don't know because Harold, as much as I love him, hasn't really kept up what he did when he first splashed onto the scene as a Marlins rookie. There have been some other guys, as we'll get to shortly, who have figured it out along the way. It didn't click immediately, but the offense did come around after a certain number of adjustments. So it's not the only thing that matters, but it is a very important thing. Dela Cruz looks like an absolute steal 
in the trade that they got him for Yimmy Garcia from the Astros. Uh, the other games were more interesting to me, even though, again, this is the one that was record-tying in several aspects. I want to move on to Saturday, a 5-4 to four win over the Cubs. Zach Thompson coming off one of his shakiest starts the previous time out. He bounced back. He went six solid innings, not overpowering, but really solid approach. Like he, especially his his cutter is always a good weapon in this one, but his changeup, uh, this was one of the better games for his changeup this year. Getting that late drop out of the zone, being able to throw it against both righties and to lefties. Thompson on my prospects list that I put out earlier this month, initially I had him as the number 12 prospect in the entire Marlins farm system. Despite his age, despite being 27 and lacking that prospect pedigree, you really cannot watch what he's doing at the major league level and be unimpressed by it. It is, I think I've kind of seen this misunderstanding from people that, you know, he's a nice fill-in number five starter type, and I just disagree with that. Now, is he going to maintain a sub three ERA for the rest of this year even, or in future years? No, I don't think so, but the the true talent behind that is not all that much different from that kind of performance. They've been protecting him somewhat. You know, he's never thrown 100 pitches in a game. He rarely throws 90. They don't fully trust him that third time through an order. Um, and I mean, that's the case with a lot of pitchers where the drop-off is there. So we don't, we don't really know yet exactly what his limits are, but we do know about the deep pitch mix that he has, that he is really solid fastball velocity and command of that fastball. He has at least two really nice secondary pitches that I like in that changeup and his cutter in this game, just a really solid performance again from him. He doesn't get the win because of an adventurous night for the bullpen. Uh, Brian Anderson, the three-run home run that looked like it would put them ahead for good in support of Thompson and get Thompson that W. Uh, a quiet offensive series for B.A. with the exception of this home run, but it was a no-doubter, and it came in a really deep count. Um, I continue to be very bullish about Brian Anderson and how important he is to the foreseeable future of the team. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, they end up blowing this lead in, I guess it was that eighth inning with a, a couple of pitchers combining to struggle there. Uh, Richard Blyer has, for the most part, not been great ever since the trade deadline passed. I bet in the back of his head he thought he would be traded and sticking around. Hasn't been quite the same guy since then. So in this one, um, he put a, a few runners on. Uh, one of them scored on what was a basis clearing a bases clearing double against Dylan Floro. And I'm going to have an article up about Floro coming up in the near future. A reminder that this pod episode goes up on fishtrifes.com. We have tons of articles up there as well. And I have some interesting things to look at with Dylan Floro and revisiting that trade with him being acquired from the Dodgers in exchange for Alex Vasilla and Kyle Hurt. Go to fishtrifes.com. So in this one, if you saw it, it was with two outs in the inning. And it was, uh, this double was a seeing eye one. It was placed in the perfect spot, fair by mere inches over the third base bag. Um, if it was any further along, I mean, that's a play that could have been made, but it was just put in the perfect spot. Bases full of Cubs, two down. A bouncer fair down the left field line. It's going to tie the game. Two runs are in. Brinson throws it back in. 
Here comes Ortega to the plate, scoring! And the Cubs have taken a 4-3 lead. That's just the thing with Floro is that he doesn't miss a whole lot of bats in general. And when you put so many balls in play, that's kind of the risk that you take with both him and Richard Blyers cut from that same cloth. The Marlins will need some more guys in the back end of the bullpen moving forward that do have that swing and miss ability and that can really take control of the game with their own hands. To, to their credit, the Marlins bounce back immediately in the bottom half of that inning, facing Cody Huyer, <laughs> who was traded over from the White Sox at the deadline. Um, someone that has significant major league experience, but no one to be really intimidated by. And unfortunately, the defense behind him let him down. It wasn't really so much on, on Hoyer as it was on uh, their shortstop, Sergio Alcantara, making, making a couple errors in that eighth inning alone. And that set the stage for Mighty Mags Sierra. Wide open space there for Sierra. Instead, pulls it into right field. Brinson is getting waved around third. Here comes the throw from Vargas. It's up the line, and the Marlins take the lead in the eighth. Magnarese Sierra comes through, and it's 5-4. to four. You'll remember that Sierra, I believe, set a recent record for making hundreds of plate appearances the start of this season without driving in a single run. He had no RBIs until like the middle of the season, despite being on the active roster the entire time. And now they're coming in bunches. He had a, uh, this was already his fourth RBI of the year. As we'll mention in a moment, he picked up his fifth one on another clutch moment in another big spot on Sunday. So now they're coming free and easy to him. This one, a game he didn't start. He came in off the bench. Nothing particularly impressive about it. You know, just a ground ball that went to the right spot. You know, it was the same sort of thing that the Cubs did in the top of the inning. As long as you put the balls in play, you uh, you have a chance to stick around. And that ends up putting the Marlins ahead for good in this one. What, anything else about this Saturday game? Uh, well, Anthony Bender ultimately closed it out in the ninth inning. That was, to me, one of his more impressive outings since the sticky stuff went into play almost two months ago. I really do feel like that's sort of a line of, of demarcation um, with Bender, where he hasn't been quite as dominant during that time, uh, this game being an exception. I mean, his slider was awesome in this appearance from the ones we got to see. And so he ends up striking out two in that top of the ninth inning to put things away for the Marlins. That's his third save of the season. You may recall I did have a preseason bold prediction that he would lead the Marlins in saves this year, and that's going to go down to the wire between him, between Floro, to see if either of them could catch up to where Yimmy was prior to Yimmy getting traded to Houston. So so great on Anthony Bender. Just overall, you need to be thrilled with the kind of rookie season that he is having as well. You know, same as Thompson. Really, both of those guys, very different roles, obviously very different stuff. But to me, if I was to like approximate their value to this organization or potentially their trade value, if you want to look at it that way, always eyeing the possibility of adding more offense to this organization, potentially in the offseason, I think they're pretty comparable. They're both really significant guys that are difficult for a lot of organizations to replace. And I think even with the Marlins, you can't necessarily assume that they'll be next men up to fill their shoes because they're real legitimately good. And both of them are coming to the Marlins the same way as minor league signings. 
non-roster invitees to spring training. It's really awesome. It is awesome to see that it has panned out that way to to give this team to guys that potentially could be around for a long time if the Marlins choose to do so. Then finally, on Sunday, the series finale, much-anticipated return of Eliezer Hernandez. You'll remember he started the regular season in the rotation, first start of the season. He hurts his biceps, misses about two months. He comes back in two months. He is even better in that outing. And then towards the end of the outing, as a base runner, he hurts his quad trying to score and successfully scoring on a ball and play, but it's a really severe quad strain. So he ended up missing even more than two months, about 10 weeks between that outing and this one. I cannot imagine what his mindset is like that to have two injuries. Both of them happen immediately during, you know, the first game of his return in both instances. And we were holding our breath. He made it through this outing with no injury scare to speak of. Five and a third innings allows four hits, one earned run, one walk, four Ks. The only run, a home run, that was hit in that sixth inning. He ends up having 27% of his pitches at his called strikes and whiffs CSW percentage. That's right around league average for a starting pitcher and a little bit lower than his norm, just to put it in perspective. And he got stretched out to 82 pitches. He is an interesting guy, and I put him in a, almost a similar bucket to Zach Thompson, if not you know a little bit above him just because of his more significant major league experience, parts of four seasons with the Marlins, and his, especially from what we saw last year, like when he really gets locked in, he is fearless in attacking the strike zone, uh, occasionally to his detriment. That's also why he allows a high rate of home runs because in this one, he was trying to challenge Frank Swindell with a fastball up in the zone and got absolutely crushed with it. His fastball velocity uh, always makes him a little bit vulnerable. You know, he sits in the low nineties with that pitch every single time hitters can catch up to it because he doesn't necessarily get a ton of extension going towards the plate either. You know, they have a little bit more time to react because his frame is smaller than, say, Zach Thompson at about six foot seven. There, He'll never be a perfect pitcher, but his you know about his slider already. His slider is right up there with the very best breaking balls of any Marlins starting pitcher. It really is. And so he got a couple strikeouts with that in this one. He also did well with his changeup, and he spoke about that post game a little bit, how the changeup usage is is back in his mix. That is something he really strayed away from for a lot of the past couple years. It was his primary off-speed pitch, you may remember, at the start of his major league career, and uh, he put in a lot of work on that slider. He turned it into a true put-away pitch, and he kind of fell in love with it and went away from his changeup, but uh, he really to, to take his game to the next level, to solidify himself as a mid-rotation starter, uh, even on a, a stacked Marlins team, all he needs to do is get really consistent with that changeup. So he ends up throwing it nine times out of his 82 pitches. Not not a huge number. Um, he ends up getting a couple whiffs on it and a called strike on it. It's, it's something. It's something to look at. It's something to just keep left-handed pit batters in particular, just give them something else to think about. He'll be in the rotation for the foreseeable future, I imagine. I'm, I'm just happy that he was healthy for this one. Disappointing that he does not get the win in this one. Again, he was 
going really smoothly through those first five innings. And then the sixth inning is when he allowed the home run. He allowed another hit after that. And I think Mattingly was hopeful that he could make it through six innings, but he was prepared to bring somebody else in. And it's Paul Campbell that actually finished off that inning. And we'll get to a little bit more Paul Campbell in a moment. Uh, Another trend I've been tracking is Jazz. For the most part, he's been struggling for almost a big chunk of the season. You know, he was great in April. He was better than anybody could have dreamed in April. And since coming back from that first injury, he's been more or less like an average player. You really can't give him any more credit than that. Just not doing nearly as much slugging as he used to. And there's been some bad luck going against him on balls in play and in terms of stolen bases and getting caught at an unusually high rate. That being said, uh, it's been a little bit underwhelming for a guy that you're hoping really solidifies himself as one of the great middle infielders in baseball. He has that upside in him. The one encouraging thing, even coming into this game, that I saw is with his strikeout rate and how since really, the I'll, I'll try to pin it at the All-Star break. I'm not sure if there's a clear sign of demarcation that really has any significance. Um, if you narrow it down a little bit more specifically, it's even more impressive if you look at August. Or, But I want to stretch out the sample size a little bit. So you go back to the All-Star break and what you get about 20 games worth of stuff from Jazz, almost that many. And his strikeout rate since the All-Star break is 11%. Out of nine times going to the plate, he only strikes out once. That rate is amazing. By Major League standards today, that is more than twice as good, you know, half as high as the Major League average for position players. Remember, this is something that throughout his entire professional career, even when he's been hot at the Major League level, this has been just part of his DNA the fact that he is a relatively aggressive hitter and that there's simply some swing and miss in him. There's holes in the swing that can be taken advantage of. Not recently. You know, recently he has gotten that rate way down. The first encouraging sign I saw was on Saturday. He did have that long double to right field. It stayed in the park. Um, but the the potential for him to combine the, kind of this newfound batted ball skill with his power that you know is in there, really got me encouraged. And then here on Sunday, it culminates in a monster dong. Really felt like Jazz was a great matchup for Mills today. He lives down in the zone from Jazz. Well, he likes to uppercut. He got a pitch he could drive. 3-1 count, 435 feet. I am pretty hopeful that he's going to have a strong finish to this season and really solidify himself as a big piece of the Marlins' future because this has really been a nice unexpected twist that he's been able to cut down on that K rate. We'll see how it progresses from here. This is a time to circle back to uh, Dylan Floro because he is the one that gets the save here. Bender had pitched each of the previous two days. Um, So I guess a few subtopics to tackle off of that. Remember with James Rousen managing the Marlins for a couple of weeks, the one tendency that was clearly different with him compared to Mattingly is his willingness to ride his most important relievers in critical situations. Um, if it was him in this position, based on what we saw from how he managed uh, both Floro and Anthony Bass at times during that stint, I think he would have gone to Bender for a third day in a row. With Mattingly, he is so reluctant to do that. 
um, with just about everybody to go to the same pitcher three days in a row, especially um, if they're, they've pitched full innings on the previous days. So Bender seemingly unavailable except for a like, crazy emergency situation and said they had Bass stretch it out for the end of the seventh and the eighth inning. They go to Floro in the ninth. First two batters reach uh, against Floro, one on a kind of a well-placed ground ball, uh, the other one on a long at-bat where he just was not able to put the guy away. And this just goes back to Floro's general lack of ability to get those whiffs. He is well below average in terms of getting swings and misses on pitches, and that is what almost turned this into a disaster because it ends up in a very long walk. Um, So they had two on in the inning, and he had thrown like 15 pitches and hadn't gotten anywhere yet. Uh, From there, he he really dug down and found that swing and miss stuff. Um, The the rest of that inning was extremely impressive, burying that changeup low, elevating the fastball in perfect spots where they couldn't really put it in play in the mid-90s. His fastball, the low, in this game was almost as high as it had been at any other point of the season. He, He gets it done. But this just shows kind of a limitation in his game. Even when he really has his good stuff and is feeling right, it's just not quite closer quality, in my opinion. This is something, again, we'll revisit in an article coming up on fishstripes.com with him. Paul Campbell ends up getting the win. This is something that I mentioned when Campbell was coming back from his suspension. Initially, I wasn't sure whether he would come back at all, depending on how the front office feels about you know his alibi for why he was caught with performance enhancing drugs they ultimately stick with him he looked pretty good during his rehab assignment it has translated to the majors i guess um so he only faced a couple hitters in this one to get out of that sixth inning and the last out he got was a loud fly ball Uh, so i don't want to give him too much credit on that one let me see if i could get the exit below on that fly out to end the sixth inning it sounded a lot louder than it was. I guess it was only 90 miles per hour off the bat of Jason Hayward hits a dead center field. Uh, <laughs> it made my heart skip a, a beat, though, when I saw it happening live. Campbell still has not allowed a run since he returned to the big leagues, and this is after having a really bloated ERA early in the year. Um, he looked bad when he was put in starting or you know long relief situations, For the most part now, he's being given simpler assignments, but still very important assignments. This was high leverage in a 1-1 game at the time and a runner on base to take over in that spot. So he already has the trust of the team. And um, yes, I don't know if his upside is super sexy. They just want to, again, get him through the rest of the season and then kind of reassess from there as a Rule 5 pick where you can't get sent down to the minor leagues. You either figure it out in the big leagues or you're hurt, or you go back to where you came from. He, he's a guy to keep following closely down the stretch just to make sure that he is, which, which Paul Campbell is he, right? Uh, is he the guy that we saw early in the year? Is he the guy we're seeing now? Is he somewhere in between? Um, it, but that's been a nice development, I would say, that you have a useful pitcher, let's say, with that pick. It is unusual to make two Rule 5 draft picks, and have both of them turn out to be useful major leaguers. Uh, The last time the Marlins did that and double-dipped with Rule 5 guys was in 2017, heading into the 2018 season. That's where they got Eliezer Hernandez. That's where they also got Brett Graves, and you probably have not thought much about Brett Graves since the 2018 season. Hopefully, with this combo, it could be a little bit more. That combo being Paul Campbell and Zach Pop. 
So I wanted to quickly mention Zach Pop because he was not involved in the series. He went on the injured list with what the Marlins are calling right middle finger soreness. He has soreness in his finger, and he's on the 10-day IL. Uh, That's a little bit eyebrow-raising. And so after taking a moment to think about it and with some input from my guys that, that know better and that you know never take the stuff for what meets the eye, this could be just about roster manipulation. So Zach Pop has already, he's been on the roster for essentially this entire season to this point, meaning that he has met the threshold for Rule 5 picks. You, know, you need to be on the active roster for at least 90 days during the season in order to satisfy the, those conditions and make sure that those restrictions no longer apply to future seasons. Beyond this year, 2022 and beyond, he could just be treated like any other young major leaguer who still has all of his minor league options, that being the key. Um, and so he's already past that point. He's been pitching so well right before going on the IL. He did something really interesting with his slider coming out of the All-Star break where all of a sudden he's throwing it a couple miles per hour faster um, and is moving a little bit differently than it was before. Um, and is it's really his fastball that's performing so much better during that stretch. He, he had a really great run of just keeping balls, keeping runs off the board, keeping balls on the ground. And his overall stats for this year, um, I, I want to just look at them quickly in case they're potentially his final stats for the year. I know that sounds crazy when you just go through an instance of finger soreness, but uh, just in case that this is it for him, it would be a 4.36 ERA with 40 strikeouts and 43 in the third innings pitched. Only allowed three home runs in 43 in the third innings. That's crazy by 2021 standards with him. Mostly just that two mix of that nasty sinker and that equally nasty slider. You know, it's a formula that works for Anthony Bender. It works at times for Anthony Bass. It works for a lot of good pitchers being able to to do that moving forward with Pop. The reason why it might be a season-ending situation is just because we're coming to the point of the year where obviously winning is not the sole priority with the team, they want to evaluate as many guys as possible. With Pop, you can't send him to the minors, and he's frankly performing well enough that he wouldn't deserve to get sent down either. But you want to have room for players who we didn't see in this series but just got called up on Saturday, George Guzman, the hard-throwing right-hander, former highly regarded prospect, Last year, well, really this year, he's just been knocked off course by injury. And after giving a shot to be a starter for most of his pro career to this point is seemingly finally being specified into a hard-throwing late-inning reliever. And they want to see what he looks like in the major leagues. One way to clear that spot is by putting Pop on the IL and maybe eventually moving him to the 60-day IL so he no longer counts against the 40-man spot as well. If there's some other nice performing pitchers you want to take a look at down the stretch or position players as well, uh, the way to do that is by opening up more 40-man spots with Pop. So we'll see with him. I, I'd i be disappointed if they didn't find a way to bring him back because I, I think he still has some stuff to show down the stretch. He wants to solidify himself as potentially on their opening day roster next year. He's, he has that potential. It's a possibility, though, that things are up for him. About half an hour into the pod, and I haven't mentioned Jesus Aguilar yet. He was one of the first guys I put in my notes, though. You'll remember early in the year, he had some wacky home road splits. He was 
perhaps the best hitter in baseball in away games for April and May and a lot of June. There was a stretch where he had his first 12 home runs of the year on the road. None of those came at home in the first few months of the regular season. Those started to even out around the middle of the year. And then entering this weekend, he had only three home runs at Lone Depot Park all year. And in this series, he had two one on Friday during that huge inning, one on Sunday as well that gave them an insurance to really put this game away. He's a guy that I guess many could have thought would be fading as the year went on. We remember that uh, just based on reporting that was out there from Craig Mish, from many of the national reporters, it didn't seem like he was particularly close to getting traded anywhere despite leading the National League in runs batted in. And despite being an extraordinary clubhouse presence um, and not being saddled by any sort of significant contract beyond this season, and uh, yet they ended up holding him through the deadline. It forced Lewin Diaz to be sent back down to the minors. I was not a fan of that. I wish they would have... I, I, I was of the camp that they should have sold for whatever they could have got for Aguilar and given Lewin a chance to kind of claim this job. Since then, Aguilar has found his second wind. This is one of the better hot stretches that he has had as a Marlin. That is saying a lot. He's been a consistently great hitter last year and throughout this year, but it's hard to find a time where he's been more more productive in the power department than he is during this recent stretch right before and after the trade deadline. So He now has 84 RBIs. And the Marlins still have, what, 44 games to go in this season. He's he's a lot of fun to watch. And it's not just, you know, in those run production situations. He, he does sometimes make something out of nothing as well in this one. Just his, his raw stats are really good. This is almost on par with where he was during his all-star campaign back in uh, 2018. It's going to be a clumsy fit going forward, even if they have the designated hitter. I'm not a fan of building a roster where you have two first base only guys in Aguilar and in Lewin Diaz. Um, I, I feel like they might do that, though, and it's it's not the worst thing if he's hitting at this level. There was a stretch during the season where, you know, he's a solidly above average hitter, but yeah, let me just pull up the number right now as we're, again, heading into the middle of August. So this is a pretty big sample size at this point, coming off another big game on Sunday and his uh, 22nd home run of the year. What is his weighted runs created plus? Again, this is where 100 represents league average, and Aguilar is up to 122 WRC+. plus which is exactly where he was last year during that shortened season. But this he is not wearing down whatsoever at this point. So up to 122 entering this new week at the plate. And it's been a joy to watch him just like Thompson and Bender and Eliezer Hernandez. He's another example of a guy where the Marlins picked him up for essentially nothing, you know, just claiming the right to pay him off of waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays. And they end up getting a super productive hitter the past couple of years who uh, they have the right to and seem to be planning to retain for yet another season in 2022. Another storyline that started right before this weekend but was uh, gave us even more information to evaluate was Jorge Alfaro as a left fielder. It started in the middle of the Rousen 
stint. Uh, and I'm sure it was thought of right before Rasengan came, uh, was moved into the active manager spot. But with Alfaro, within a couple days, he went from being their primary catcher to being their primary left fielder. During this weekend series, he played all three games in left field. He started two of those in left field, and he started the third one at catcher and then moved into left field for the final innings. Um, let me think of who, whether it was Todd Hollinsworth. I can't remember where, whether I was watching the TV broadcast or the radio broadcast with uh, Glenn Geffner at the time. I think it must have been the TV broadcast where they rightly pointed out Severino and Todd Hollinsworth that they were showing a lot of confidence in Alfaro to, as a part of a double switch to move him into left field during what was at the time just a one-run game, a 2-1 Marlins lead. To this point, he hasn't had a ton of difficult plays to test him. There was one, if I recall, where he was kind of clumsy running down a ball in the corner that potentially gave the runner an extra base. That was prior to the series, though. Overall, he just hasn't had a whole lot of opportunities to like test his route running. Um, the arm has had its moments. It's been a little inconsistent in terms of hitting cutoff men and getting you know the right height on those throws coming in. Overall, it, it, there's nothing that's it, that's really egregious about it, though, that really says he's that much worse as a defensive left fielder than he was as a defensive catcher, to be honest with you, when you compare it to league standards. Um, I, w- I went on the record on this pod not that long ago saying that this should be the time to simply cut ties with them. That if they were made it a priority to acquire Alex Jackson, they have several kind of interesting catchers waiting in the wings at AAA right now. That and that if they were ready to move on from Alfaro as their catcher, then they didn't need to wait till the offseason. They could have designated him for assignment right now, swallowed the money that was remaining, and just open up those roster spots for guys that you want to evaluate. Um, I, I didn't expect them to go through with that, and uh, I don't have much confidence in them doing it anymore um, during this stint. You know, the bat has ticked up a little bit. You know, the offensive numbers have been right around league average since position change with still a lot of strikeouts with him. That's always going to be there. And that's, you know, the main frustration with him is that he's just so undisciplined and struggles so much to identify pitches and distinguish between them. Um, so we, he's been a better version of himself. He hasn't been a great version of himself. And you have Jesus Sanchez, who's almost due back from the IL. You know, he's been gone for almost a month. Remember him? Jesus Sanchez, one of our favorite rookie storylines um, during that spell that he had as our everyday left fielder with him on the verge of returning. I'd like to see him as our everyday left fielder again and not split playing time with Alfaro in any way, not try to force him in there. So as I'm recording this on Sunday night, Sanchez is again in the Jacksonville lineup on rehab. This will be what his fourth rehab game and it should be his final rehab game. I, I would expect him back in Miami at some point during this upcoming Brave series. They're going to put him on the roster, and um, they're probably not going to get rid of Alfaro yet for some reason, and uh, I wouldn't bet on them getting rid of Magnaris Sierra either. Um, I think we could finish off with Sierra and you know this roster situation in general. He did have a couple legitimately clutch hits in this series, both on Saturday and on Sunday. He came through in really key moments. Uh, for a guy that, as I mentioned before, had a ridiculous stretch without any run production whatsoever early on this year. And, you know, he has thankfully improved in that regard. There was nowhere to go but up, and he has gone up. We know what he does 
in center field and in all all the outfield spots wherever you need him. What he does as a base runner is fine. Again, I've mentioned this before that there haven't really been those signature base running plays from him that we saw at times, uh, especially in 2020 during that nice stretch that he had uh, with everybody else out due to COVID. That you know he's a plus in that regard, but not somebody that is using that speed quite as I would hope that he did. Like Jorge Alfaro, he is out of minor league options. And uh, like Alfaro, there seems to be a decent number of other outfielders in the wings that should be getting playing time over him moving forward with the way that Lewis, Lewis Brinson has totally flipped the narrative about him with how much Brian De La Cruz has impressed us with the talent that Jesus Sanchez has right there. Um, are they going to really have a roster with Brinson, De La Cruz, Sanchez, Alfaro, and Sierra? Uh, I guess it seems like it, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it at all, being that Sierra is kind of in the same position with Alfaro, where it's hard to imagine him being on the roster entering next year due to the limitations in his game and the limitations with his roster status. The fact that he is finally going to be arbitration eligible and earning a little bit more than the league minimum. And when the Marlins have other outfielders in the wings who will be earning the league minimum and have more upside, certainly, than than he does. So that's going to be a conversation for upcoming episodes is how they put together this roster down the stretch to, I guess, make it as good, make it good, make it viable and competitive, but kind of more importantly, just to get the right players on the roster who have some role to play moving forward that have some that you're motivated to find out more about. I would love to see them instead of Sierra to fit Brian Miller back into the equation. All he got was a cup of coffee right after the trade deadline before being sent back down. Miller does a lot of the same things as Sierra, except that he has all of his minor league options left and he has the ability on all things being perfect. He could, he at least has the potential to knock a ball out of the ballpark and just consistently hit line drives in a way that Sierra, even uh, during this glorious weekend, he wasn't necessarily making great quality contact, even though he was getting some nice results going along with it. As I said up top, the Marlins are in fourth place, sole possession of not last place in the National League East. First time in a while we've been able to say that. I'm not surprised based on what we saw at the deadline. Right after the deadline, uh, the Nationals were still several games ahead of the Marlins in the standings, but just being an objective and comparing the talent that those teams had on their rosters moving forward, the Nationals really left themselves with absolutely nothing with the exception of Juan Soto. It's Juan Soto and a bunch of guys. So those teams still have a couple series to play against one another that I guess will ultimately determine where they stand in regard to each other in the standings. But my expectation is that the Marlins do finish in fourth place. Um, not something that necessarily means much of anything. I'm, I'm sure it is a minor victory for the front office that makes them feel like they're making progress compared to where they were in 2018 and 2019 to have that result. Not so much because of what the Marlins did, but more so what the Nationals did to themselves. That was somewhat of a theme of this series, too, against the Cubs. The Cubs and the Nationals are in that same boat. They have not left themselves with very many major league quality players on either side of the ball, and that's how you get all these defensive errors being made, 
all these meatballs being thrown, uh, all the walks and hit by pitches that were thrown in this series as well to give Marlins extra opportunities. And, and they took care of business. So credit to them. It's a much different challenge. This upcoming series against the Braves will be previewing it as we always do on Fish Stripes Live presented by 305 Candles. You can find that stream on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch. Starts one hour before the first pitch of Monday's game. I'm looking forward to that, and we'll have plenty of our coverage on fishstripes.com. The series preview written article from Nicole Cahill. We'll have some of my own analysis about some of the topics referenced earlier in the show. There's still so much on my mind. I can't quit them. I can, and I'm, I imagine many of you are in that same camp where you can't help but pay attention to this uh, for the time being and, and see exactly what they do with the second wind down the stretch. Eli Sussman signing off. Thanking you always for listening. Leave that rating and review for us, please, uh, for the Fish Stripes podcast on Apple. And I'll talk to you again next time. Go fish! Go fish!